Thank you for joining me on the Pleasure Principle Podcast. This is part two of two episodes that are going to tide you over until the beginning of the year. As I shift my focus to MS and sexuality, I wanted to again share my own MS story. The first section tells the story of my diagnosis in 1993 and the level of denial that I hung on to until a life-threatening episode hit me in 2008. Part two of my MS story goes into that surreal experience of that episode and how it led me to make an excruciatingly unwise relationship choice. The level of internalized ableism that I blindly carried until very recently is awful for me to look back on. But that's the big irony of isms, isn't it? The insidious internalized manifestations are always the most dangerous. Like congressional homophobes that turn out to be hooking up with gay men in bathroom stalls, I denied or scoffed at the idea of disability to my own detriment. And ultimately, these attitudes influenced how I treated others. I was never horrible to a disabled person. Damage can be more subtle than that. Looking away, not acknowledging someone's experience or existence is violence enough. My initial aversion to the idea of talking about sex and disability was what finally brought my internalized ableism into my conscious awareness. I can see now how I was affected by denial, and this new focus on MS and sex will be my effort at making amends for any inadvertent damage I may have done to myself, my loved ones, or the society that I live in. So what follows is a replay of a portion of a previous episode with an addendum added at the end. So, get ready. Don't flinch. All my life, I held fast to my body's strength, the power in my muscles that could run, the grace that would never let me fall. Even after the multiple sclerosis demon came to live in me, I pushed ahead, giving birth at home for a second time, completing a triathlon, continuing my education, starting one business, then a second, 15 years of both physical and mental, pushing, pushing, pushing on through. But this 2008 episode I've been talking about would overpower me, then ultimately transform me. I had just lived through a horrific and acrimonious divorce, the end of a passionate yet toxic relationship with my business partner, the sale of that business, the founding of a second business, the death of my uncle, then in quick succession, the loss of my mother. My body, mind, and spirit were traumatized and depleted. Yet I kept barreling through with another one of my eternal mantras echoing in my mind. Just keep moving, just keep moving, just keep moving. Convinced that my body would carry on. The reality is that molten lead will sometimes fill my legs. Each step forward takes all I have. When it hits... All I can think about is immediately lying down in the middle of the sidewalk, in the grocery store aisle, anywhere. It takes every bit of strength that isn't there to look down a long, empty hallway with my destination less than 100 feet away 
and not crumble into a sobbing heap. But I do it. Sometimes that means pushing myself physically until I feel that my body will simply dissipate into nothingness. Sometimes it means calling for a wheelchair that crushes my heart with the shame of its four metallic wheels and the cold, shiny chrome flaps that open to cradle my numb and useless feet. On moderately bad days, I will rely on what I used to call my loathsome cane. My favorite one is made of clear plexiglass. I like to think of it like Wonder Woman's invisible plane. When someone says, cool cane, I like to smile at them quizzically and ask, what cane? Oh my God, such denial. In the spring of 2008, the sensations crept throughout my body like dark alchemy, a tingling in my feet that burrowed ever deeper, spreading inwards and upwards, becoming dead wood. Eventually, my limbs became chunks of flesh and bone that served as pointless weights I was forced to carry with me throughout the day. The doctor put me on intravenous steroid treatments, 1,000 milligrams a day for five days in a row. The MS monster didn't flinch, but simply barreled along on its conquest of my body. Despite this, I kept working. At one point, I asked a friend to pick me up from the Ivy Clinic and take me to the airport so that I could get to a conference I was determined to attend. Another round of steroids followed, and then another. After four or five rounds within a month or so, the numbness had reached my neck. I'd lost command over the movement of my limbs, and a boa constrictor had taken up residence in my torso. His singular purpose was to squeeze my diaphragm tight, tight, tighter, until my breathing became conscious labor. At one point, I realized I could not move my fingers to type an email to my neurologist's nurse. When the doctor called back, he could only say, I've done all I can. My body would not withstand any more steroids. I'd risk damaging vital organs. So I lay in bed alone. Nothing more to do. But that night, I remembered that there were some Tibetan monks in town. They'd been booked up for months, but my friend Sally knew them well. I called her and asked her what she could do to get me in for a Buddhist blessing. She came through. Another friend of mine, Tina Marsh, who was herself battling a resurgence of breast cancer, picked me up to deliver me to the back of a little New Age bookstore on South Congress, where I would receive my blessing. We delighted in a moment of hilarity when we looked up at one another in the same moment, each witnessing the woman next to her barely hobbling along. What a pair we made. It was the middle of May and already so unbearably hot. At that point, I still refused to own a cane, much less a walker or wheelchair, so I shuffled along. Every bit of my attention was divided on two tasks. The careful placement of one foot in front of the other and breathing. One step, one breath. One step, one breath. My life became a meditation against my will. Step, breath, breath, step, step, breath, breath, step, breath, step, breath, step. I entered a blissfully dark, cool room that smelled of books and Nog Champa, and eventually settled myself among plush pillows on a low chair. 
The monk spoke only Lhasa Tibetan and communicated through an interpreter, and he took me on a journey through a long meditation. I remember absolutely nothing of what the interpreter said, but when it was over, a quiet stillness settled over me, and the monk uttered the only words that he said to me in English, do not be afraid. I felt that tears were streaming down my face, but I reached up and my cheeks were dry. The monk then tenderly placed a golden thread that he had been braiding into my open palm. The relief was complete. A rare kind of respite that comes with surrender to the inevitable. That night, I tied the golden braid around my wrist and slept more deeply than I had in years. The next morning, the doctor called to say that in the night, he had remembered an experimental treatment that they were beginning to use for stubborn MS flares. It's called plasmapheresis. From Wikipedia, plasmapheresis is the removal, treatment, and return or exchange of blood plasma or components thereof from and to the blood circulation. It is thus an extracorporeal therapy. Basically, twice a day, they would take all the blood out of my body, separate it, toss my problematic white plasma, and then give me donated, friendlier white blood cells, and then put it all back in my body. Those 10 days in the hospital were comfortingly surreal. Because of the bow constrictor, my focus was always on my breath, which transported me into a meditative state that lasted for weeks. I consciously did things that kept me sane and brought peace. The TV was never on. Instead, I played a peaceful New Age music mix on endless repeat, I wonder now if it drove the nurses nuts. I would often imagine walking into the fancy Mexican food restaurant that I could see from my window across 38th Street, or I'd lie with my eyes closed and feel what it was like to swim laps in the local pool while my children played nearby. Cool blue water, warm sun, weightless body. Eventually, I created an elaborate visualization in my mind to heal my ravaged nerves. So the lesion that was causing the trouble was located at C2, that's right at your neck, and it grew to cover over 85% of the diameter of my spine before it stopped. A lesion is something that can be seen on an MRI. It looks like a white spot and is caused by the body attacking the coating of the neurons called the myelin sheath. The destruction of this fatty insulin makes the electrical impulses in the central nervous system slow, or if it's bad enough, stop. Every day, I took several evening primrose gel caps, which contain the perfect fatty acid that the body needs for neurological health. I imagined an army of little butch construction workers surging through my vascular system and into my spine, carrying buckets of stucco-like goop made from healthy cholesterol, lecithin, and other good things that this supplement provided. They busily converged on the frayed neurons that my own immune system had been attacking and then expertly slathered their thick, gooey concoction just where it needed to be. They were adorable. I had the time to conjure exactly what they looked like in their white overalls, white painter's caps over short, buzzed hair and muscular arms, bulging as they heroically wielded hefty trowels loaded with fresh myelin. Why not? Anyway, for someone who was stuck in bed, I was surprisingly busy. My children and their father brought me fresh food so that I didn't have to eat crappy hospital grub. 
and occasionally friends or family came to visit. I needed assistance to eat, dress, or creep slowly to the bathroom. I made each one of these tasks physical therapy in and of itself. Each tiny movement received 200% of my attention. And after a week of treatments, I began to feel a slight improvement and was so proud to be able to go to the potty all by myself. I literally laughed out loud when I had this thought. I mean, just a few weeks before, I had been a successful driven businesswoman, forcefully charging through life. The experience was humbling, to say the least. I believe that the most important thing to understand is that I was forced to revisit my belief that I could make it on my own. I realized that that was an illusion and a deep limitation that I inflicted upon not only myself, but those around me. It is a gift to help someone in need and equally healing to receive. My friends Janine and Carla, who I had met campaigning for Hillary just a few weeks before this crisis, stepped up to help a veritable stranger. They drove my kids places while I was in the hospital, and Janine picked me up to take me home. Elaine drove me around for a couple of months until I could control my limbs again. And one day she even stepped in the shower with me to shave my legs when she realized that I was trying to wield a razor with unreliable hands. Besides learning how to receive help, the ability to surrender was another gift this episode gave me. Surrender to the rhythm of life and death and surrender to the vulnerable connection that I had with everyone around me when I'd spent my life convinced that I could make it all on my own. I tried to hold on to the feeling of peace that cocooned me throughout that strange time. But old habits die hard. As soon as I could walk again, I slipped quickly into a fresh state of MS denial, and I tried to forge ahead with life as though nothing had ever happened. But the business that I'd started just months before eventually folded, and the financial strain brought me to the brink of foreclosure on my home. In the effort to avoid reality, I ended up diving into a consensual power exchange relationship and moving across the country, despite the common wisdom that after serious loss, one should make no sudden moves. Unfortunately, that relationship pretty quickly devolved into an extreme caricature of every abusive relationship that I'd ever fallen into. But in the end, it was the one that healed me of that pattern. At first glance, it could appear to be a classic domestic violence situation, but I've come to understand that the magic of that exchange was the element of consent. The topic of consensual power exchange is a rich, exciting, and at times titillating topic with so much to unpack. We'll uncover this in depth with experts in future episodes. But for me, the ultimate lesson that has come out of the last 12 years of my life was that all of that upheaval, loss of control, and dark struggle eventually brought about cataclysmic change. But this transformation could only happen when I was able to do the extremely hard work of staying present with my emotions while remaining grounded in my body. I had to allow myself to feel the tremendous loss. I had to grieve. I look back on that time now and I understand that I was traumatized physically, emotionally, and spiritually. I look back and see that my mental capacity was severely diminished, and it's clear to me now that this made me extremely vulnerable in every way. 
mind, body, and spirit. After that horrible episode that I just described, it just so happened that a person came along at just that time who was ready to take advantage of that vulnerability. So through manipulation and brainwashing, I became convinced that complete surrender to this person who had actually exhibited abusive behavior from the very beginning was my path to peace. That seven-year-ish nightmare ended up completely breaking me. But in the end, it was also the experience that set me free from patterns that I had been repeating all of my life. Because I grew up in an abusive home, I subconsciously recreated that in one way or another in almost every relationship I was ever in. If I happened to choose someone who was not abusive or unavailable in some way, I ended it. The point is that I looked up after having escaped that last abusive situation and I saw that I consciously chose to be in a relationship that was so extremely abusive that it was a caricature of every relationship that I had ever been in up to that point. After I got away from that situation, then I dove into years of intense therapy, including a 12-week program that was offered by a women's shelter that was near me, and I had some fantastic EMDR therapy. After I did all that work, it was obvious to me that in this specific situation, I had consented to that treatment. And when I understood that, I could also see that I had the power to consciously break the patterns that I had been subconsciously creating and recreating all along. Last month was Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And so I wanted to at least introduce my story. I also want to specifically say that people who are experiencing the kind of medical crisis or or even the omnipresent threat of medical crisis that many of us with MS live with, that we are particularly vulnerable to, to domestic violence and abuse. So if you're in a situation in which a caretaker or a partner is harming you emotionally, mentally, financially, spiritually, or physically, please reach out for help. And remember that if you're in a same-sex relationship, you are just as vulnerable as everyone else. According to a study by Maria Sanchez Guzman and a few other people, the factors that make you even higher risk are things like anxiety, a perception of bad health, and experiencing, and this is in quotes, an excess burden of control by the caregiver. When they did this study, they did this and this study was done in Mexico, and they interviewed the caregivers and the people with MS separately. And what came out of this study is that 53% of the caregivers reported violence. 88% of that violence was psychological, 8% was sexual, and 6% was physical. Now, 38% of the people with MS reported violence. About 65% 65 of that was psychological, 6% was sexual, and 6% was physical. If you have experienced the kind of life-threatening MS episode that I did, or you've had a serious setback, 
or if you've been newly diagnosed, do not jump into a relationship right after that. Remember, make no sudden moves. I'll have some more episodes on this topic as time goes on. I'll bring in some folks that can help us understand how this happens, how to prevent it, and how to get out. If you've ever experienced anything like this, I would really love to hear from you. Sometimes you just need to talk. I know that. And I'm here to listen. Sometimes you need to tell your story. And if you are willing to share, even anonymously, perhaps your story just might help someone else. So here are a couple of numbers that you can call if you do need help. The National Domestic Hotline is 1-800-799-7233. And the National Multiple Sclerosis Society number is 1-800-344-4867. I'll include both of those numbers in the episode notes and a couple of websites as well. I'm going to go silent for just a little while, but I will be busy creating content that is specifically for those of you with MS and for your healthcare providers so that they have the tools to help you keep a healthy, happy, fulfilling sex life going, even when your immune system throws you for a loop. I am excited about this new direction that I'm going, and I'm looking forward to new beginnings. Take care of yourself through the holidays, and I will check in with you next year. Okay, one more thing before I let you go. This is the first of a series that I'm going to tack on the end of every program from now on called Corrections and Questions. Corrections because inevitably we sometimes say things wrong or I go back and listen to an episode and I think, oh, I wasn't really very clear about that. And I want to uh, correct things and clarify things and questions because this is also where I will start posting listeners questions and doing my best to answer them. So today I just have a correction. Back in October, I had an episode uh, that talked about the primary, secondary, and tertiary ways in which MS affects sexual health. And I felt like I didn't phrase uh, the primary effects very well. So the primary effects of MS on your sexual health is when there is damage done to nerves that directly innervate any part of your sexual response system. This can be nerves that innervate the urogenital system, or it can be a part of the brain that affects the neurotransmitters that are crucial to having a satisfying sexual experience. So any of that can affect sensation in the genitals, erectile tissues, lubrication, or production and uptake of hormones and neurotransmitters. So that's my correction. If you want to learn the one-on-one basics of the primary, secondary, and tertiary ways that MS can affect sexual health, go back and listen to the episode in October. So that's it. Really, this time it's goodbye. Okay, go. I'll see you next year.